Today, we are going to talk about what's called covenantal theology. And I know these are probably new terms to most of you. I get it. Um, but my, uh, my goal here is to give us an understanding and a framework to understand biblical eschatology as a whole and not just Revelation as this standalone book where things happen, we don't know why, there's no tie back to the rest of Scripture, there's, you know, there's a disjointed approach with Revelation often. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about dispensationalism. And how many of you can cite what that is? What is dispensationalism? Do you remember? Yeah, and what, what is a dispensation? Yeah, so it's, it's a dispensation and dispensational theology or the dispensational hermeneutic is a time period in which God does a specific things with, uh, thing with regards to salvation. Right, so um, it's and there's seven of them according to uh, the guy who came up with really codified the theology, and then uh, we know in most evangelical circles that there are most evangelicals in evangelical circles can name three of them and actually break it down into three, and those three are covenant of law or old law, old dispensation. Dispensational law, the dispensation of grace, and then the eschaton or the millennium. All right? So the reason that we took the time to go over dispensationalism the way that we did is because most of us in, in America and in the West have a dispensational concept of understanding eschatological events or prophetic events as they are woven through the scriptures. <sighs> so, with that said, um, I was going to do a, a uh, glossary of terms, um, but I didn't get to it, so sorry about that. I realized getting about halfway through it that I could either do 14 of these or 240 um, because there's a ton of specific language to the idea of eschatology, like eschaton and premillennialism and uh, praetorism and all of these different isms that they come up with, and it's hard to keep track of them unless you read a lot. Um, and so I will try and do that for you guys later. Now, we talked about the hermeneutic. Anybody remember what hermeneutic means? Just simple. The way you, the framework by which you interpret Scripture. It's your understanding of the way Scripture is to be read. And there are various ones. I think that there are four predominantly. But I differ with most people who write hermeneutics because uh, the guys who, most textbooks will tell you that there's quite a few of them. Um, but I think the ones that they list are subcategories. Uh, so dispensationalism is, in fact, a hermeneutic. It does cause you to understand Scripture a particular way, especially with regards to Israel. Okay? Covenant theology, on the other hand, is a different form of hermeneutic. All right? And what it basically does is uh, it understands, it draws a, 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 an interconnectivity between Old and New Testament and gives continuity to the whole of Scripture. This is important. What? I'm sorry. It draws a, uh, an interrelatedness between the Testaments. It connects them. It makes the Old and the New Testament relative to one another. All right? So you don't have this massive break in God's economy when Jesus came to the earth. Now all of a sudden, God's going to start dealing with men completely different than he ever has before. Okay, and, and there's so many things that I've heard people say, like, we're not under law, we're under grace. Well, there's truth to that. But what does that mean to most people? Most people believe that when they say that, 
that grace is abrogated or done away with law. That's not true. And so by those kind of statements, we create a very, very significant gap between Old and New Testament, and we read them as separate things. And so covenant theology actually bridges this gap. It actually brings a continuity. It actually makes the things that were talked about in the Old Testament matter to you and I and the things that God is doing right now on the earth. And so this is, this is the way that I understand Scripture, and this will have significant impact on the way we teach Revelation. Because once we get to Revelation and we understand this, we'll be able to turn around from our perspective in Revelation and understand how all of it lines up and how all of it means something. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to go through this relatively rapidly. I'm going to try to finish this because next week I want to do um, some of Daniel and Ezekiel and then I want to get into the millennial concept because that's a big one because we're teaching it from an ah-millennial perspective. All right? So before I jump in, does anybody have any questions to what we've covered so far? Is there any, anything that needs some clarity, anything anybody needs to go back and rehash? Maybe I've been vague or whatever on something. Going once, going twice. All right. My wife will be passing out the test in a minute. All right, covenantal theology. This is the name of it. This is what you will understand. This is very specific to reformed, uh, the reformed system of theology. However, it's really a misnomer to call it covenantal theology. It's actually covenantal hermeneutic because it's not a theology per se. It's not a system of understanding theology. It's a system of understanding how the Scripture works together in God's workings, all right? So what is a covenant? Who knows what a covenant is? Why do we call it covenant theology? Or covenant, a covenant hermeneutic. The first thing we have to do is understand what is a covenant. Who knows? Go ahead. A contract. Okay. Mutual responsibilities and demands. Anything else? Yes. An unbreakable vow. Okay. And that... So far, everybody's pretty, pretty good. So promise and a responsibility. Contractual agreement. Uh, anything else? So all of you, when you became, if you're a member, all of you, when you became a member, signed or participated in a covenant agreement. We are in, you and I, in covenant agreement, which means that I've covenanted with you. I've committed to your life. And there's a reciprocation back. All right? So, yes, Dan. So would it, uh, between a covenant and a contract, my understanding is that a, a covenant um, can't be voided by, like your part of a covenant can't be voided by the other party. Okay. It's like you're, basically you're saying you're committed regardless of. And we see that in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament where God set up a covenant with Israel. And he maintained that covenant even when Israel had fallen repeatedly. And Jeremiah is a really, really good book to read with regards to how God understands covenant and how he brought all of the things that happened to Israel because he maintained his covenant. He maintained his, his care and love for uh, a wayward wife. Uh, on that, excuse me. On that point, though, didn't God uh, redo, uh, remove His protection on Israel to let their their enemies uh, punish them for their yeah, yeah. So, all under covenant context, though. Yeah, but it's not like God totally ignored um, the the, res, the punishment due them because of their failure to yeah. You know, yep. live up to by their end of the covenant. 
But the, the, uh, the justice of God is, is specific to the covenant if you read Deuteronomy. If you don't, X, Y, and Z. And they've, so it's still part of the covenant. And one of the things that we have to understand when we, come, when we talk about biblical covenant is there's two aspects to every biblical covenant. Grace and justice. Both of those work together. You cannot have a covenant biblically that does not have both. Okay? Grace and justice. Now, when Jesus brought in the new covenant, there was grace and justice included. Yes? Where's the justice? The wrath of God on Jesus on the cross. That's the justice. All right, so there's always grace and justice and, and, and righteousness, and we need to understand that in anything God, all of God does all that God does. So God's just not this lovey God that, you know, winks at sin. There's justice engaged there, right? So um, if you, I mean, if you overspend your checkbook, guess what? The bank's going to call you. Because there's two sides. Yeah, as long as you got money in there, as long as you're putting money in there, you can write checks, and the bank's happy to honor them. That's their covenant with you. But when you run out of money, checks are no longer honored. So just kind of along those lines. Covenant. O, Robert, o. Palmer Robertson's phrase is this. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Okay, now it's not exclusive, but I do like the terminology. It is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And it's always from the, the authoritative party where biblical covenants come from. By God. I'm sorry? Who said, that? Who said what? Oh, Robert Palmer. All right? Covenants are typically characterized by a visible sign and seal. Remember Abraham? And the, the burning altar and the, the animals that were split in two and then the torch passed through it and the altar passed through it. Visible signs. Okay? Um. Covenants are typically characterized by a visible sign and seal which serve to remind, you want to use that term, God of his promises. Another one of those is the, say it again, rainbow. There you go. Um, of his promises to those whom he has entered into covenant with. Some examples of these are the rainbows we've just said, circumcision to Abraham, baptism, and the Lord's Supper given to believers after the coming of Christ. So these are all signs of covenant relationship. The term covenant is a Latin term, meaning a coming together. It presupposes two or more parties who come together to make a contract agree, agreeing on promises, stipulation, privileges, and responsibilities. The preferred meaning in the Old Testament is bond. So in the Old Testament, the preferred meaning is a bond. Two parties have come together in a bond and agreed upon something. Often covenants were between two equal parties. This means that the covenant relationship was bilateral. The bond was usually sealed with both parties vowing, often by oath, that each having equal privileges and responsibilities would carry out their assigned roles. Because a covenant confirmed between two human parties was bilateral, some scholars have concluded that the covenant Yahweh established with human beings is also bilateral. Uh, however, this is not the case. It's not. Um, God, in, uh, God initiated. He determined the elements. He confirmed his covenant, and he confirmed his own covenant with humanity. It is unilateral. God's covenants are unilateral. Let's think of one that's unilateral, that's really simple, that a lot of people don't understand as being a covenant. Starts with the letter E. Election. 
Election is a covenant. It's a unilateral covenant agreement. I will choose for my son a bride. And we know that his calling is effectual, right? So he brings us into that covenant. And we're going to talk about where that, the, the origination of that covenant. But election is a covenant, as I understand it. Okay? Everybody good so far? All right. Covenant theology, however, refer, uh, distinguishes the Reformed view of Scripture from other Protestant outlooks by emphasizing that divine contracts unify the teachings of the entire Bible. Now, remember when we talked about dispensationalism, what were some of the things that dispensationalism, by its uh, defined purpose, what does, or by its definition, what does it create? Remember we said that there were four things that dispensationalism actually creates a differentiation between. We won't remember them all, but Israel and the church, right? Law and grace, okay? Rapture and the second coming. So in all of these things, we have a significant breaking in the, in the, in the continuity of Scripture. We've talked about that already. What covenant theology or covenant, the covenant hermeneutic does is it actually brings them together. So that the Old and the New Testament actually do this. From Genesis, God starts his program like this, and it does this. It gets bigger, okay? It becomes more inclusive. It widens. It becomes global, Remember, in Abraham, I will bless you, so I'll make a nation. That's a, sh- that's a type and a shadow of the inclusion of the church later on. So instead of understanding Scripture like this, old, break, Israel, drop out, new, church, rapture, Millennial Israel. This is really choppy, right? This almost requires you to read the Bible a a very specific way, right? This is for us. This is for the church, the New Testament. This is not. This is for Israel. They have a different dispensation than we do. And so... You will hear a lot of times people say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. Okay, well, you are, but you're also a biblical Christian because all of it matters. And a covenant theology gets us to understand this. And when we talk about eschatology, because eschatology is woven throughout the entirety of the Bible, this is going to matter. Mike, we got. Thanks. I just want to say real quickly. So that means that, importantly, that the church is found in the Old Testament. Yes, I believe that. Now you'll hear a lot of people say that the church was born on Pentecost. You'll hear that. You'll read that in a lot of theology books. But I think that may be true, and I'm not going to get into splitting hairs. But the church is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, okay? It is pictured and intended. It is in God's plan from the very inception, from Genesis 3-5 on. The church is pictured and foreshadowed, okay? So you will hear people say, oh, the church didn't happen until the New Testament. That may be true, but there's all kinds of pictures of it in the Old Testament. It is foreshadowed, and a lot of people especially that hold to a covenant theology, will go back and say, this is the church. This was the church. This is where you can see it. This is how it looked. So, and, yeah. so Adam, David, 
Election has always been, right? Election is not a new covenant or a New Testament concept. Right? Where's a good example of election demonstrated in the Old Testament? Where's a good... Jacob and Esau. Is that what you were talking Ishmael. How about Abraham? How about Abraham? Who was Abraham? A pagan. Was he a Jew? No. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur. So he lived in Ur. And he was an idolater. Had no idea who God was. God chose him, called him, called him out of his home. Leave your family. Come to a place that I will show you. That's election. Because Abram was not looking for God, had no idea, right? So it wasn't like Abram was a righteous man and he'd done all these things right and God saw him. The Bible never says that about Abraham or Abram at the time. All right, although the importance of the divine covenants has been realized since the time of the earliest church fathers, covenant theology was not articulated as a thoroughly developed system, taking into account the entire Bible uh, until the days of the 16th and 17th century. Um, Herman Witsus is one who really codified covenant theology, if you're into reading church history. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith displays a full uh, and well-thought-out covenant theology. If you've have, how many of you have ever read the Westminster Confession? Good. Very covenant, very covenantal in its, in its layout. Um, so like I said, covenant understands and relates to the unifying principles between Old and New Testament. The covenant concept is an organizing principle for Christian theology. It views the history of redemption under the framework of three overarching covenants. Okay? Anybody know what those are? So dispensation has seven separate dispensations. Covenant theology has three specific covenants. Anybody know what they are? Adam, Noah, and I'm not sure what the next one is. Adam is one of them. I'm sorry? Okay, okay. And Christ, okay. The first one, I'm not going to tell you if you're right or wrong, but the way that the way that most of you just answered the question is the way that we understand what I would call sub-covenants. All that point to the fulfillment of God's higher and overarching covenants. Okay? The first one of these is called the covenant of redemption. This doesn't work very well. Of Redemption. How many of you ever heard this? Rick. What is the covenant of redemption? It is the agreement, covenant, the bond, reached in eternity. So it predates history. Yeah, I, I don't know that term, I'm afraid. So I, would, I, I don't know the eternal covenant. I, I think there's a, there's a book by Kevin Connor that looks at the covenants, and the eternal covenant is how he terms the covenant God made with himself yeah. before creation. Then that's, that's what this would be. Okay. Okay. So this is a covenant of redemption. It, was made, it predates history. It is a covenant made within the one, the Trinity, that God made with Himself. 
um, actually between God and uh, the, the Son, which, by which salvation will be pro- provided for sinners. All right? Said differently, the Father promises to give a people to the Son as an inheritance, and the, un- the Son undertakes to redeem them. Okay? So this is the first and most important of the three covenants. Why is this the most important? Because everything else comes out of that. This is the mitigating covenant. This is, this is the covenant that sets the standards for the other two. God, within the, within the Godhead, between Christ, or between the Son and the Father, the Father covenanted with the Son to give him a bride, and the Son covenanted with the Father to redeem that bride. Go ahead. Yeah, I was, I'm sorry. I was, I was going to say, can you give a biblical reference for that? I can think of one. Okay, go ahead. Ephesians, before ordained, before the foundation of yes. the world. Yes, okay. So, yeah. Um, and that, to be really honest with you, what Rick just said is one of the rubs against covenant theology because a lot of people say that that word is never used no, it's not. It's in, right. in context prior to eternity. So it's one of the things that dispensationalists will say covenant theology is bogus because, well, not bogus, but it has problems because there's nothing in Scripture that says that this actually happened. However, there's inference, okay? It's not explicit, it's implicit. There is inference that's, that God covenanted with himself within the Trinity to, to redeem sinners. The Father said to the Son, I will give you a bride. The Son said, I will redeem that bride. Okay? So that presupposes a fall. That presupposes all of the things that we see going on around us right now. Dan. So if it's, if it is, if it's something that's, been in place for eternity. It never they didn't ever necessarily necessarily make it. It's just that's. Like oh, now you're talking about the, timelessness. Oh, well, we could right. talk about so that. So in terms for a while. of you say there's not in scripture referring to this happening at some point, but it talks about that it exists. It's like a, it's a covenant that exists within the Trinity, but because it's he's eternal. Right. So it, it he never had to like Sit make down the covenant. And it's just part of who he is. Right. That's true. That is true. However, if, you, if you're ever interested, I'll give you a couple of names. There's a couple of books. There's one out by Helm called The Eternal God. There's another one out by uh, T.F. Torrance where he talks about what, what he calls God time. And so uh, it's an interesting read because there was a time where God was not always creator, although you can call him an eternal creator because there was a time when God created Right? At time as we know it. So there's all this back and forth. If you want to get into philosophical stuff, it's fun to do. Try to consider what it would be like to be eternal and, and have what's called the eternal now, where everything is actually now for God. Your 15 minutes ago is now for God. Your two hours from now is now for God because he's already there. Right? So you start getting into some kind of, ooh, so when we think about this, Dan has a good point. So when we think about the covenant of redemption, we always think about, you know, like these, this little circle table and the three members of the Trinity kind of sit down and hash out how they're going to work this out. Well, that's not really a very good picture to form because what he said is true. This has been in the mind of God since God. Yes. understood that is in the let us make man in our image and then... In the New Testament, we read that Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world was laid, and that to me is how I can keep that straight. Yeah, and you know, that is actually a good scripture to verify this. Christ crucified before the foundations of the earth. So there had to be some kind of agreement that he would do this, right? So this brings us to an interesting perspective and this is something that's, that's always been helpful for me. When we talk about God having something purposed in his heart for eternity, if, in fact, he had redemption purposed in his heart for as long as there was God, right? When was there not God? Never. So if 
God, being eternal, has always purposed redemption. You have been elected and in his heart since as long as there's been God. That's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. So he didn't just up one day and go, oh, I think I'm going to make people. Anybody know off the top of your head? Uh, Christ crucified from the foundations of the earth. I can look it up. Well, somebody look that up for me. If they got Google handy. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I think so too. But as soon as I say it, it's going to be on the internet. So I'd rather be right. Yeah. Repeat that so that... Acts 2.23 says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And Revelation 13.8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life, uh, slain from the foundation of the, of the world. Okay, so all of that points back to this covenant. All of that it, determinate will of God. In eternity, God has determined to do this. So we call this the covenant of redemption. I will give you a son. I will give you a bride. Son's response, I will redeem that bride. Okay? Out of this now, overarching covenant, come two others. The second is the covenant of works. Okay, and this one was who? Who was this covenant made with? Adam. <laughs> sorry, I was abrupt. No, I'm sorry, it was Adam. Is that better? I, I hope I didn't make it sound like that. <laughs> covenant of works made with Adam. All right, so what is this covenant about? It teaches that God entered into covenant with Adam in the garden, all right? In this covenant, God solemnly promised Adam eternal life if he passed what's called the probationary test of the Garden of Eden, all right? What is that covenant? What did he say? Have you ever thought about Adam being in a probationary state? What does that mean? He's being tested, right? Why would God need to die? Why not he just, you know, why doesn't he just make a perfect people? There's something in redemption, and this is what... These are, now we're jumping into mysteries of God, okay? Mystery, listen to this. This is an important thing. Mystery is not a problem to figure out. Mystery is, a, uh, is something to be worshiped and reveled in, okay? Don't ever think that you're going to figure out everything that there is in God. God is not a problem to be solved. He is a wonder to be worshiped. And we have to keep mystery in our theology as a central focus. Why did God do this? Because there's something in redemption by which God is revealed that he is not revealed in any other way. I don't know what that is. He has not shared that with us. But God is a redeeming God. And he has 
shown himself to be that. Why does he want to be that way? I don't know. Okay? So that's the best answer I can give you. In the garden, did God know Adam would fall? Yes. Did he set the stage for Adam to fall? Yes. Why? Because he had a plan and a purpose that he wanted to bring out in order to reveal who he was and who he he still is. Something having to do with redemption. Now, why does he do it that way? I don't know. He didn't sit me down one day and say, well, I'm going to do this and here's... He just... Because it's the mystery and the unfathomable concept of this God that we serve. I don't know the answer. But he worked a covenant of works out with a man in the garden. And he did, what were the stipulations of that covenant? Out of all, we always put a negative spin on that. Let's put a positive spin. Out of all the trees in the garden, you may eat freely. Every one of them. They're for your, for your enjoyment, except that one. And I just have in my mind's eye that while God is pointing out the tree, they're kind of moving over to it. What's so weird about this tree? Why can't I eat this tree? What's up with this one? So anyway, the idea of disobeying God, this is interesting stuff, but when you go back into Adam, the idea of disobeying God was probably not even conceived of. They would have never thought not to do that. So... There needed to be some agent put in the garden that gave them the idea. Right? Yes. Just a thought I had that um, when God gave the command to Adam, he was, he was speaking to a, a perfectly mature man. That's true. And so he had all the faculties of a mature man to make the right decision, and yet he still fell. And yeah. So he was, when God judged him, he was perfectly righteous. In doing he was perfectly righteous. There was no sin nature in Adam. There was no predisposition to checking this tree out. Just curiously, do you guys know where Adam's main failure was? Not priest. Adam was... (laughs) I'm not going to repeat that. Adam was the first priest. The garden was the first temple. Adam's the, the, if you know what the term priest actually defines, it means to protect. Adam's job was to oversee the garden. Men, your first job as the priest of your home is to protect your home spiritually, to give covering to your wife. Adam did not do that because the serpent was in the garden. All right, so that was Adam's first failure. He didn't cover the garden correctly. So anyway, covenant of works, set up with between God and Adam. If you do this, you'll live forever. All right, we know Adam failed, right? And so we can get into all the theology of what that means and what that looks like, but you really don't need any theology. All you have to do is open the newspaper. Get on the internet, read something, and you'll know what happens when this was broken. We're living right in the middle of it. So, upon Adam's fall, we now have the third covenant, which is the most important to this system, which is called the covenant of grace. Okay? When was this made? Yes. Now, how many of you equate grace with being an Old Testament principle? Very few people do. Very few Christians do. Grace is all over the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham was called by grace. Not because of works, but by grace. He wasn't under covenant. He was called into covenant. By grace. All right? Grace in, in the Lord's um, long suffering with Israel. That's all grace. So the covenant of grace is now entered into. 
Um, this is the covenant which God made with fallen man after Adam's sin. Paul, uh, o. Palmer Robertson defines it as the relationship of God to his people subsequent to man's fall into sin. Now listen, this is important. Since man became incapable of works suitable for meriting salvation... Um, this period has been understood as being controlled primarily by the grace of God. It dictates all of God's dealing with men, the elect directly and the non-elect indirectly alike. And the keys to this covenant are, you guys have the notes that we passed out yesterday, last week? Good. Okay, I couldn't remember. All right. What are the Stipulations, what are the, the, the components of this, this covenant? First one is, you, you just said it a minute ago. What do we call it? Well, the first one is this. And Proto-evangelium, or the proto-evangelium, depending on who you read, is the first gospel you will have a son. I will put enmity between you. Isn't it interesting? Who was the one that initiated the enmity? God did. I will put enmity between you and the woman. The serpent saying this is the serpent. And his seed will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. That's the beginning of it. God promised to send the seed of the woman who would defeat the serpent. That's the first promise, okay? The second one is this champion or the son to whom the, uh, the bride was promised would come to fulfill the broken covenant of works as a federal representative. How many of you know what federal representative is? It's a legal term. And it's big in Reformed theology. It's, it's the way that I understand things. How can we say that all are in Adam, therefore all have sinned? How can we say that? Did you sin like Adam sinned? <laughs> That's true. Adam is what's called a, a, a federal head. And so is the last Adam. So a lot of people have a big hang-up. They're like, well, I never sinned like Adam did. No, but you never walked the face of the earth like Christ did either, but you're in Christ, who's now your federal head. Right? So it's a legal term. Because Adam sinned and all men now have a marred image, sin doesn't just pollute the external. Sin pollutes the very fabric of everything. That's why God is going to destroy this creation and create a new one because evil is so interwoven into the very fabric of this creation. And it is the same way with each one of us. Sin is so interwoven into the very being, even at the cellular level. Why do you get old? Why does your hair fall out? Why do you atrophy? Why do you get sick? Because sin and the fall is so interconnected with who you are. Right? That God has to completely... Redo. That's why when, when there's, a, when there's a, a born again, that's why that expression is used. You are a new creation. Okay? So, in brief, the covenant te uh, theology teaches that God has established two great covenants with mankind. The covenant within the Godhead to deal with how, and the covenant with, within the Godhead that deals with how these other two work. So I missed, I missed a spot. So the, um, the second one is that uh, the son would come, come and redeem. Well, let's do it this way. Crush the serpent. Okay. Yeah. And that he would be our substitute, penal substitute, as our federal head, okay? 
All right, biblical covenants emphasize what is needed at specific stages of God's kingdom by furthering the principles of the previous covenant. So when you guys, when I ask you some of the covenants, you guys pointed to the Noahic, the uh, Abrahamic, the Davidic, all of those covenants, which God did make, but they all fall under this covenant here. They're all sub-covenants to the covenant of grace. God just continues to further what he's doing by making this covenant. So how does the covenant made with Abraham work in, within the covenant of grace? How does that work? So how does the covenant made with Abraham fall under the uh, the overarching covenant of grace. How is it a sub-covenant within the confines of the sub, uh, covenant of grace? Anybody, can, can you think about that? It's what is the covenant made with Abraham? And uh, to do what? To, 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 well, now we're coming back here to the bride. Right, where the seed will come from. So Abraham, the covenant God made with Abraham is specific to this covenant here. Noahic covenant. I will never again destroy the world with water. Jesus refers to what the picture, what the, the, the shadow of the ark is. Right? It is Christ. So that points to this covenant of grace. The Davidic covenant. You will never, ever, for all eternity, fail to have a man sitting on your throne, sitting on the throne. What does that speak of? Jesus. Redeeming. So all of those are sub-covenants to the covenant of grace that we now function under. And this covenant of grace is not broken in two by Jesus' first coming, by his incarnation which is different than dispensationalism because there's now continuity, okay? So how are some of the things? i got to hurry through this. So how, what are some of the things that we understand about continuity? Well, let me say this because I, I really think this is important. Covenant theology also is essential to rightly understanding the centrality of Christ to the eternal eschatological redemptive plan of Christ. Okay? So where did eschatology begin? Where did the beginning of the end start? The fall. The proto-evangelium. The very first statement. I will... You will have a child and you will crush the serpent's head. That is the... That is the story of the end from the beginning. And we have to read the Bible with regards to that being an unfolding picture throughout. And because that promise has to do with our Redeemer, we have to find Christ in the whole of the Scriptures as being the central theme. Not Israel, not the church, but the Son of God. Okay? This is why this is important, because covenant theology understands the centrality of Jesus to eschatology, and it traces it throughout the whole of Scripture. It doesn't break it into dispensations. The, the study of the end things. It's called, eschatology means last word. Okay? All right. Um... The Old Testament, with all of its events surrounding the establishment of a people, the deliverance of that people, the law, the ceremony, the priesthood, the kings, the prophets, all of which are types and shadows of the coming promised seed. Do you guys ever think about the tabernacle? And, and so in dispensational ideology, there's going to be a physical tabernacle that comes down out of heaven, right? And it sets itself up on where the Dome of the Rock is in Israel, and people will come from all over the world and worship there, right? That's the concept. 
That's a standalone concept because the tabernacle is a shadow and a type of something else. It is man and God walking together. That's what tabernacle means. So in the Garden of Eden, was the, the Garden of Eden then was the first tabernacle where man and God walked together. And it's going to be that that's going to be redeemed in the new creation. And so when we read the ideas about there being a tabernacle created in the wilderness and then uh, Solomon setting up a tabernacle and then the third tabernacle period and all of that stuff that you read about in Israel, all of it points to Jesus Christ. From henceforth on, you will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He is the mediation between God and man. They perfectly walk together in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the tabernacle. There will be no tabernacle that comes down out of heaven. Not like that. Does that make sense? So that's why we look at the Old Testament as being a type of God's bigger picture. I'm not going to get done with this today, so we'll pick it up a little bit tomorrow, uh, next week. And we'll get into um, Daniel's 70 weeks and some of the millennial concepts, and then we'll jump right into the text. Because once we have all of this down, we'll, it'll be uh, to our benefit. Because then when Rick starts to talk about Revelation 1, we can trace it back to Genesis 3.15. We can understand how the whole picture of the Bible unfolds in Revelation. Because Revelation is a picture of God's redemptive plan. From start to finish. All right, It's not to be relegated to the end times because it, it is, in fact, a story and a picture of this. Okay? All right, we're going to stop, um, and we'll pick this up next week. Father, we're grateful for your unfolding plan of redemption, the covenants that you've made, the initiation that you have embarked on by which you will call to yourself a people. From the foundations of the earth, you have chosen us and covenanted with us through election and put your, your seal and your finger on each one of us and called us into relationship with yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.